Camille. And hi, Devin. And hello, everyone, and welcome back to the second episode of Transatlantic Confusion, the podcast where me and Camille try and, A, figure out how to record another episode, and also talk about the news that confuses us on both sides of the Atlantic. Exactly. We've been friends for a long time and just thought we'd love to be able to look back on uh, all this years later. So why not record ourselves and maybe share it with the world? So here you are. And without further ado, what we're going to be talking about today is the inauguration of President Biden. It is our inauguration special. Woohoo! Hey! <laughs> yes, I don't know if you can tell, but we are very excited. Yes, we are very excited. This has been a long time coming, and we are just going to get out in front of it and say that we are extremely glad that Donald Trump is no longer the president of the United States of America. Right off the bat, we're not really going to not really going to beat about that bush, I think. <laughs> Indeed. I watched CNN, which is the only TV channel that I have available to me for American news here in France, and um I was like, I know I need to take a break because the inauguration is not going to start for another couple hours, but I will sit in front of this TV until I have seen Trump and his wife walk out of the White House and leave. And that is exactly what I did. And it was well worth the wait. I didn't bother um, just because it was just like, don't let the door hit you. But it was also kind of like I was getting ready for work when it started. So I started streaming it from Vox. So they had like the live stream from the inauguration committee going. So it was pretty. Well, I'm not an American citizen and therefore I have no right to vote. So I know quite a few people and some of them have tried would like to tell me to uh, shut up. <laughs> but I was in the States when Trump was elected. I remember that feeling of dread. I was very worried about my friends uh, living in the States, about um, my visa, about all sorts of things. So here I am now back in France, took the day off, especially for this occasion, got to sit in front of the TV nine hours ahead. It was a bit weird. So I didn't get to see like the concert and all the stuff they had in the evening because by then I was sleeping. But I, I don't think I really realized it until the next day. Like, I watched Trump leave, get on the helicopter. That's all the time I gave him because I was like, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. But... Yeah. <clears throat> I I think I was standing during the national anthem, but mostly because I was just trying to get dressed. Uh, sorry. But while we're at it, Lady Gaga, I think she did a really great job. Uh, her outfit was completely bonkers, as usual. What I heard on the internet so often was... um. She looks like she's about to announce the start of the first annual Hunger Games. That bird pendant or that bird brooch, amazing. But also it like took up half of her shoulder. It was amazing. But I guess more on like a serious note, I, I'm not really going to pretend to hide the real relief and the real pride of seeing everyone there and seeing him swear the oath and kind of go from there. Also like seeing... Kamala Harris take the oath um, and it 
be administered to her by Justice Sotomayor, who is, you know, the first like Latina Supreme Court justice. That was a really powerful moment. So yeah, and then Biden's speech, um, I think was exactly what we needed to hear. I, I wanna say like, I'm not really gonna blindly stand uh, Joe Biden, but I do wanna say that I think he has real potential to be a good president, a great president. Um, he has all the makings of it. Um, we're about three days into his administration now, and there have already been a lot of really interesting moves. Granted, they've all been kind of geared at um, reversing some of the least popular aspects of the Trump presidency. For example, you know, well, we're going to get into it, but like that's kind of been the feel so far. But it was it was a really powerful moment, and I'm really glad I got to see it. It's been a long four years, uh, to say the least. For sure. Two two things I thought about during their uh, swearing-in ceremonies. The first one was, oh my goodness, a woman of color is VP. Yeah. Like, it took so long. And I'm not a huge fan of hers and her work, but it's it's a historical moment. And I think she's going to do great, at least I hope so, for the country. But I think, you know, it's going to be better than what you guys had before. So I just so excited. And to see, let me make sure I don't make a mistake, the second gentleman. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because I actually didn't know what the spouse of the VP was called before the inauguration in 2021. <laughs> I did not know what they were called. So... Well, well, traditionally, it's, well, this is the first time that a man has held the position of being spouse of you know, a female vice president or a woman vice president, you know, so traditionally it's second lady, like Jill Biden was second lady during the Obama administration. Mm. And this is the first time that we've had to use second gentleman. Um, it's it's interesting because I guess if you really want to be pedantic about it, which I don't, uh, it would be uh, second Lord, but we don't have Lords here in the United States. Family Bible that Joe Biden used for his swearing in, because I'm not very good, even after six years in the States, you tell me, you know, how much does a pound, like, what is an inch? Like, I would not be able to tell you. But also because of the six years in the States, I also don't remember how to calculate in kilograms and <laughs> centimeters. So you ask me how, like, how long is five centimeters or how thick is five inches or whatever? I would not be able to tell you. So I thought, oh, five inches, like, whatever, it's not that big. And then Jill Biden was holding it. And I was so worried for, like, her forearms. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. But then I read up on it found out that every important date uh you know for the family uh any important events the date has been written in that bible so it's actually such a huge like thing so i was uh, i was very i don't know i was i was touched by it so seeing these two being sworn in was just i don't know it kind of made me a bit emotional and um and i just couldn't believe it to be to be honest i did not expect it there there was so much stuff happening for four years just non-stop scandals non-stop issues non-stop attacks on the people of the united states except for a certain few that really up until the last minute when i had to go to bed i was waiting for something to go wrong i was just so worried so i think that's why it took some time for me to really realize nope you know they're good it went on just fine we're okay it's it's clear it's 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 happened we're good yeah well that is a really good point it's also kind of like we're not 
totally out of the woods yet. I mean, Biden was really great at acknowledging right out of the gate that there are three main crises that our country faces right now. There's COVID-19, there's the massive economic fallout from it, the second um, one in my lifetime and many other lifetimes. Like the the second highest or the worst unemployment we've had in almost a century. And then there's also the climate crisis, which is for the first time really something that the federal government is going to take seriously. And that does kind of bring into like what we also wanted to talk about, because there was a lot of talk about unity. And I guess the real question is, is like, do we think that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris can bring unity to the United States? Um, I have to say like, First of all, I think there's no unity without accountability. And so there's this whole narrative here in the States where it's, well, if he really wanted unity, he wouldn't be, you know, going after us or like um, he would drop the charges against the president or like Trump or whatever. But I also want to point out that it's like this extreme mindset does not speak to the majority of what America actually believes. It never has. Uh, Donald Trump was the most unpopular president in American history since the beginning of the modern polling era with uh, President Truman back in the late 1940s. So he never had the support of the majority of the American public. We saw that because he lost his election. And quite frankly, the 2020 election was the most fair, open, and legitimate election we've had. It was above board. It was a triumph of democracy in the middle of a global pandemic. So that's something that we should all really take into account. And there's this whole thing about, well, why is he trying to disregard like 74 million votes? Well, it's like he's not, but 84 million or 85 million people voted for him as opposed to 74. And that's the nature of democracy. And I think Joe Biden is going to, Joe Biden rose to the occasion um, like many people in our country's history have done from say, you know, FDR, which I think is the closest parallel. There's a lot of parallels between the situation that the U.S. is in and the situation that Franklin Roosevelt took over from in 1933. There are a lot of parallels between him and say like Abraham Lincoln, although that's kind of a cliche at this point. Every president is compared to Abraham Lincoln in some way. But I think that there is a lot of potential. I feel hope for the first time that I have in years. Um, we have a president who has an agenda to try and address some of the real inequities of our society and also take these crises seriously, which they weren't. I mean, 400,000 Americans are dead, and a lot of it is down to the failure of the United States government to take a crisis seriously, to accurately and truthfully communicate with its citizens and also to try and give them the resources that they need and the assurances that they need in order to move through this together. And that is a real failing. Uh, and that's something that we need to be honest about. I mean, you can talk about it all you want, but Donald Trump did not really leave that much of a legacy in terms of positive impacts on the American Republic. He threatened democracy. He tried to undermine a fair, legitimate election. He also incited violence. I mean, it's kind of like a cliche at this point because so many people are pointing it out, but the last month has been crazy. The last three Wednesdays have seen a complete reversal in the American political situation. So like Wednesday on the 6th, we had the president inciting a riot or an insurrection to try and, which is unacceptable. 
And then the wins after that, Donald Trump became the only president in American history to be impeached again in one term. And it's also, for the record, the most bipartisan impeachment in American history because 10 Republicans voted for it. And on the one hand, it's great that 10 people suddenly had a back, you know, standing up to a president who actively sought harm to American democracy, but it's also like only 10. So that's something that we really need to be aware of. And then, you know, this last Wednesday, Joe Biden was inaugurated after having his election legitimately confirmed. So it's one of those things that's, there's been, there's been a lot happening. We chose a really great time to start this podcast. <laughs> but do you think that Biden can bring unity? I want to have hope mm-hmm. for sure. Here are a couple of things that make me go, your country is so young. Yeah. Um, in terms of the country of the United States of America, because we all know people lived there before, you know, Europeans showed up. But the one now known as the United States of America hasn't even been around for 300 years yet, which might seem like a long time. But there are graves and cemeteries around Europe that are older than your nation. So unfortunately, that means there are still a lot of things that need to be um, talked about and um, addressed in terms of, you know, some people say forgive and forget stuff that happened at the beginning of the country don't matter anymore, but that's not true because we're talking about great-grandparents here, not 400 years ago, my ancestors. No, we're talking about people. I'm thinking about slavery, Jim Crow. I'm thinking about Native Americans. I'm thinking about all of this. You can't have unity when your country is based on division. (laughs) and um, doing this to people that live on the same land as you. So it's still ongoing. There are so many questions about immigration, about reparations, about rights. I mean, you know, uh, trans rights, LGBTQ plus rights, women's rights in terms of uh, reproduction. It's just, I really want to see it i just don't know if we'll be alive to see it because it's also a very big country with 50 states that are all very different from one another i mean when we were in washington definitely wasn't the same as when i went to alabama (laughs) all right but it's the same country yes so but that we shouldn't put all of our hope on him and the vp because they only have four years to try and first of all reverse some things that trump has done which they've already started doing, but some of them it's going to take longer, it's going to take more work, it's going to take votes in the Senate, it's, it's going to be complicated. And also, you know, it's four years. It's, it's always easier to divide than to unite again, because now people have this hate. You have entire groups of people hating their fellow citizens for things such as their race, um, ethnicity, their simple political views and it's just an all-out you know kind of war on each other um so that that scares me like i i want i I believe in them i have i have hope and and not just in the two of them i think the, the house and the senate might be able to get some more stuff done but there are quite a few of these folks that i don't trust especially after january 6th the biden administration 
is the most diverse we've ever seen. And I am so excited because they actually seem to represent the people in the country um, way more than we've seen before. So I'm excited. I just, I think it's going to be very tough work. And I think it's going to take way longer than just four years. And that it has to be a collective work, not just federal level. You've got the states, you've got people at home. I think it starts at every level. Can't just put it all on Biden and Kamala. Exactly. And that does kind of lead us to what's next. So not only did we have an inauguration, Joe Biden um, enacted 17 um, executive orders on his first day in office, some of which were geared toward COVID, but also some of them were geared toward undoing some of the more negative things that Donald Trump has done. I also think that four years is too little. Not that I think you should have longer terms at all. The United States is rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, which can only be a good thing. Climate change is one of the most existential threats to our way of life. And so having not only like the richest economy in the world, but also one of the main contributors to climate change, balking at that and kind of not willing to hold up its accountability, but also demanding, you know, power. I think that's kind of it was it was unacceptable as as an American citizen. It's unacceptable that America is not committing or has not committed to fighting climate change or thinks that it doesn't need to. So that's a really positive thing. And that's something that will have a positive impact going forward. Not only that, but the Muslim ban from is we're not going to euphemize it anymore. It's a Muslim ban. It's based on religious hatred and Islamophobia <clears throat> that has been swept away as has the permit for the Keystone Pipeline, which not only contributes to climate change, but also contributed to real issues of indigenous land use and also um, indigenous justice. So that's something that has been, that is in the process of being canceled. Um, and that's just the start. In terms of like the more substantive things that Joe Biden wants to do, um, there are two main legislative packages that he's trying to get through Congress. And there are some roadblocks that we will talk about, but to kind of go over it real quick, the first one is his $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. Um, this includes um, extensions and um, expansions of unemployment benefits to around $400 a month, expanding child tax credits, um, investing more in vaccines and vaccine development, and also trying to do things that would really help the average American by pushing the federal minimum wage, which has not been raised since 2009, from $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour. And these are things that um, we're unsure how it can be passed in the Senate, especially since the Democratic majority is so thin. It's 50-50 right now with the VP Kamala Harris breaking any ties, although the negotiations for a governing agreement that has to be put in place between Minority Leader McConnell and Majority Leader Schumer are have hit snags. For example, um, McConnell is insisting that they protect the legislative filibuster, which is the rule in the Senate rules that say um, you have to have 60 votes to break debate on a law, and then um, you can vote on it. So if you don't have 60 votes to even end debate, then you can't move forward and enact the law. <clears throat> But there's also this process called budget reconciliation. And essentially what it means is that if it pertains to the budget but doesn't affect taxation, then it just needs a simple majority. The interesting thing is that uh, Bernie Sanders, who is you know 
We love Bernie. Uh, <laughs> the meme going around right now is amazing. Um, Bernie Sanders is now the chairman of the budget committee. So he has an outsized role and in fact control over how budgetary things like the stimulus bill will go through the Senate. So it's kind of a tricky balancing act. So, But the kind of ethos behind it is that Democrats seem to be learning their lesson from 2009 because while the stimulus bill they enacted along with the Affordable Care Act really did real help to the American people, um, they didn't go far enough because they thought that they could help the economy like jumpstart it and then it would kind of build on its own. And it did save the economy and it you know did help with the recession, but then it didn't see the big bump or the big resurgence that it did. So the economy kind of trudged along for a while, building and building throughout the Obama administration and then the Trump administration. And then due to COVID-19, we saw this complete reversal with uh, massive unemployment due to a global pandemic. So this is kind of how Biden wants to most aggressively start to address the problem. And GOP leaders in the Senate have already signaled resistance, especially to some of the more um, generous I guess is their term for uh, aspects of it. So for example, they are dead set against the $15 minimum wage, but they're trying to see if they can push that through with budget reconciliation. Um, there's more stimulus checks. So right now as the proposal stands, they're going to try and put through $1,400 to add to the $600 that were sent out to add up to 2000. A lot of the more progressive members of the Senate want to push it up to 2000 just outright. So that's something that's gonna be negotiated or pushed through, hopefully. And then also there is uh, Joe Biden's immigration plan, which is, um, it is going to have to go through normal legislation. It's not really something that can be put through using budget reconciliation just because of the sweeping nature of its reforms. It's going to strengthen, strengthen DACA and also give a pathway to citizenship to over 11 million people in the United States who are affected by DACA who are not affected by DACA and so forth. Uh, it'll try and really create more immigration equity in the United States. And it's the most, I think it's the most fundamental change to the United States immigration system uh, since the beginning of the 21st century. So that's a big thing to watch out for. And then from there, because it's all happening so much, so I'm not trying to talk too much, but it's just a lot of information and it's great. Um, but, mm -hmm. but then also, while we're dealing with that, uh, and Joe Biden has been enacting um, executive orders to kind of help quell and deal with the COVID crisis, there is a cabinet to confirm. So according to the United States Constitution, you know, the U.S. the U.S. president is in, in charge of appointing the heads of the government departments, the secretaries, and they all form the body known as the cabinet, who meet together with the president, enact government policy. It's very similar to the cabinet, say, in like the U.K., except they are not as powerful as a group. They are like a body of advisors. But the Constitution does also stipulate that appointments have to be approved by the Senate. Um, since the filibuster reforms in the last few years, that was actually pushed through by McConnell. They only really need a majority vote, but they do also have to go through committee. And right now, since there's no governing agreement due to the uh, filibuster snag, the Republicans still hold majority seats on a lot of the committees that need to approve these cabinet appointments. As of right now, uh, today, the day that we're filming at the 23rd of January, I think about two or three cabinet positions have been confirmed. There is the National Security Advisor position. There was the um, 
Defense Secretary, and I think Pete Buttigieg as Transportation Secretary is on his way to getting confirmed. He actually had a really great um, committee meeting, so they're all kind of behind him now. Um, so it's approving the cabinet, appointing the cabinet. Um, it's a long process, but then it's also complicated by the fact that we are now going to prepare for Donald Trump's second impeachment trial in the Senate. Um, which essentially, because his term expired before he could be removed, it is constitutional to do. I think this is a consensus that goes back to the Nixon administration uh, during the Watergate scandals. But the main thing that we're looking at right now is that if he's convicted, um, he might be barred from running again in 2024. And that has huge implications for the GOP. It also has huge implications for the political environment going forward. Um, it's kind of interesting because right now the GOP is kind of uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because right now so much of their base is loyal to Donald Trump still. But he's also still broadly unpopular with most of the American public. You know, he obviously lost the election. If Donald Trump doesn't feel like the GOP is being sufficiently loyal to him, and we're already seeing recriminations for those who voted for impeachment in the House, like Liz Cheney, um, there might be, he might try and break away and form his own party. But also if he stays as head of the GOP into the 2024 election, there's a real possibility that the GOP might lose. So we're seeing um, a lot of calculations going forward. Um, Nancy Pelosi as of Friday announced that she would be sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate, which automatically triggers the trial. Uh, and then late last night, Senate leaders approved an agreement to where the impeachment trial would start around the 8th of February, which gives Donald Trump a little bit of time to cobble together an impeachment team. And due to the fallout of the Capitol riot, um, he's having trouble finding lawyers, I think, to represent him. So it's very interesting. So these are all of the things that are going into play. Um, it's amazing that Joe Biden is the president now. He's going, he's aggressively using every power that he has to help tackle the crisis through executive orders, through regulations, rolling back the most hurtful parts of the Trump administration. But also there are things that really can't happen without Congress. So the balance of power in Congress is interesting. Democrats do have a majority in both the House and the Senate, but the majority in the House is super thin, and the majority in the Senate is so razor thin that the vice president has to break the tie. So it'll be interesting as we go forward. Camille, do you have any questions or things to add to that real quick? Yes. Uh, I would like to say the name of two people. Uh, and I think it's important that we actually say their names. We've got General Lloyd Austin, would make history and did make history um, as the first black person to lead the Pentagon. Yes. Retired Army General and served as the commander of the U.S. Central Command. So congratulations. I am, I'm very excited. And then we, of course, have Deb Holland. Yes. Sorry. Um, it's also really important to point out that not only will she be the very first Native American to hold a position in the cabinet, she will be Secretary of the Interior, but she will also, but that means that she will be responsible for managing Native affairs in the United States. So this is huge, and it's a momentous occasion in our country because it's a way that we can start to atone and build on, you know, reparations and also further integration mm -hmm. of Native rights in this country. Yes, I uh, I just remember 
her reaction when she was uh, announcing that she had accepted the nomination and she like choked up and, and teared up a bit. And um, I just, I'm so excited to see how this whole thing goes um, for everybody. I teared up too. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, um, it's wonderful. So yes, the general Lloyd Austin has been confirmed. Now I'm just waiting to celebrate Deb Holland as secretary of the interior as well. Hopefully uh, CNN says three days since nomination awaiting confirmation. So we'll just be patient, you know, um, been waiting hundreds of years. I think we can wait another few days. So, um, yes. And I would also like to mention a few things. Now I don't understand. I don't always understand when you talk to me about these things, you know, how the budget is going to be decided, you know, when is it that the government might shut down because it's not been decided, but sometimes it's fine. But like, I don't know, what's the difference between federal and state level in terms of, um, for example, federal minimum wage? Uh, duh, why would you leave it at seven? <laughs> I'm sorry. I remember being paid seven fifty an hour. Not in Washington, but I was doing that as a student job. How are you supposed to pay the bills? It's impossible. And it wasn't in a big city at all, but it was still way too low compared to the cost of living. So it makes sense. But can you please tell me if it passes to $15 an hour, it's federal law. Does that mean every single state has to be at $15 an hour and then they can go higher if they want to? Or is it just kind of telling them, this is what we think you should do, but then it depends on the states. Yes. <clears throat> so the history of the minimum wage in this country is a fraught one. Um, not going to lie, it is kind of built on worker exploitation. So that's something that we need to address as well. But basically, the idea of a minimum wage came out of the New Deal, which was enacted during the presidency of FDR uh, during the Great Depression. Uh, the way that it works, and it's regulated through the Federal Minimum Wage Act. Um, it acts as a floor to all minimum wages across the country. And essentially what it means is that the way it's set up right now, I think it's 725, all states have to have a minimum wage of 725 because of, you know, federalism. So a lot of the times those types of regulations, um, what goes is that if it affects everyone, it, it's federal law. So yes, the states can raise the minimum wage. In fact, a lot of states do based on how much they feel is the right minimum wage or based on political factors within their own states. But they cannot go lower except for certain situations like if you are working at a restaurant and you live off of, if you get tips or for certain people who have certain disabilities. So for example, the way it works currently, you know, so I live in Washington and as of right now, the minimum wage is $13.69. And this comes after a bill that was passed, I think, about three years ago that would raise it up um, to a certain level, like $13.15. And then after that, it would be adjusted according to inflation, which is the way it was supposed to work on the federal level, but due to conservative politics and also due to the fact that it has to be adjusted with legislation, it has not risen with inflation. So that's kind of where we're at. So the big thing about the $15 increase if it passes on the federal level is that it does mean that every state will have to have a, fed, um, 
a minimum wage of $15 an hour. They can, of course, raise it higher, uh, keep it pegged to inflation, for example, as here in Washington, um, or they can just not move it at all. So the, the reason it's important is that so many states, particularly red states, um, just go with the bare minimum because, you know, there's this idea that if you work a job where you get minimum wage, some for some reason you don't deserve to earn a living wage, which I want to point out is completely counterintuitive because the idea behind the minimum wage is that it is a wage that you can earn and still afford to live. You can afford basic housing, food, transportation, those types of things. But it kind of transitioned away from that, specifically during the decades after the New Deal, going into the 50s and the 60s, and, you know, the 70s and 80s. Uh, it didn't keep up with inflation. Uh, wages in general in the United States have not kept up with inflation. Um, you know, we have the greatest level of wealth disparity in this country that we've ever had. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of tied up with that. So in fact, you know, I've heard a lot of people, uh, a lot of economists point out that at the time the $15 minimum wage was introduced, uh, it's been such a long uphill battle and we're not even done with it that due to inflation and due to the cost of living in this country, instead of $15, it should now be closer to 20. Um, so it's one of those constant battles. Um, and it also requires, you know, us checking our biases and also recognizing that if you work a job, if you work a full-time job, you deserve to be able to live and be a member of society and have a positive impact. Like you deserve to feed your children. You deserve to like live in a place that is worth living in. So I think that's something that we need to consider. But to answer your question, that's how the minimum wage works. And that's why it's such a big deal. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, because I was worried that it would like be voted and, you know, and like it would be a thing. And then the states would be like, yeah, but that's only like, Mer. and because I know some things we had talked about, we talked about before, I would be like, oh, my God. So it's federally, it's like this. And you're like, yeah, but it's still going to depend on the states. And I was like, but I'm confused because it's federal. Yeah. And that's the weird thing about American federalism is that sometimes it definitely is kind of blanket across the board. Sometimes it is up to the states. And that's kind of the weird patchwork of federalism that's developed in the United States. So it's it's fascinating to kind of uh, mm -hmm. go from there. Other thing I would like to say, I have stumbled upon this gem of a tweet. I will not say the senator's name because I fear that if I do, I will start bleeding from my eyes and mouth. Uh, but because I'm highly allergic to uh, idiots. But I would just like to read this to you. <laughs> I'm sorry. By rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, President Biden indicates he's more interested in the views of the citizens of Paris than in the jobs of the citizens of Pittsburgh. This agreement will do little to affect the climate and will harm the livelihoods of Americans. This person's name rhymes with Meb Ooze. <laughs> and I just, I thought it was a parody and I went to check and it is real and it has not been taken down. And I would like to say as a citizen of Paris, 
who might never have gone to Pittsburgh. I'm sorry, I'd love to visit. But as a citizen of Paris, I can tell you, if Biden ever tried to like be interested in our views and kind of take over Paris, <laughs> the French the French would not be okay with it. <laughs> like this has nothing to do with it. Like, no, it was just signed in Paris. So I would just like to make that clear. The Paris Climate Agreement is not for Parisians, it's for everybody. It was just signed in Paris. They had to name it something, and they probably didn't have that much inspiration. So there you go. But stop stop making it feel like it's unpatriotic to, to join it again. Parisians have, like, there is no link in between Parisians and Biden. I would just like to say that. <laughs> We're not involved in any conspiracies. Well, to kind of also jump on that a little bit more in a way that's I think also doubly frustrating um, is that the Zodiac Killer kind of refuses to acknowledge the fact that uh, it's extremely hypocritical for him to even bring that up because he voted to disenfranchise the votes of the people of Pittsburgh by trying to you know undermine the legitimate results of an election. Not only that but the mayor of Pittsburgh you know another democratically elected you know, leader uh, has committed the city to following and supporting the Paris Climate Accord. So, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, I don't, I don't really know what else to say about that because it's so dumb. I'm sorry. It's dumb. You don't have to be sorry. I absolutely agree. Uh, I think even if you disagree with what the president is doing because of political parties, political views, whatever. When it's just been two weeks since an insurrection that some members of Congress did help with in one way or another um, or encouraged in one way or another mm -hmm. and they still haven't resigned. When you have officially lost over 400,000 Americans to COVID-19, do you really want to focus on this fake you know, thing that Biden cares more about Paris citizens? than Americans, come on. Like, you're just trying to stir, you know, stir the pot. You're just trying to do something shitty here and keep turning people against each other. And it's not even true. <laughs> like, it's not even true. But to give an idea of what people over here think, now I can't speak for everybody, but I can certainly speak for my mo mother. And so I would like to read this to you because... We are a Belgian family, mm -hmm. and uh, my grandparents were liberated by the Americans. So this is what we like to think about when we think about America. My 20-year-old father in the Belgian military. This man told me about the first piece of chocolate that was given to him by an American soldier when Americans came to free Belgium when he was starving. This man who had to stop attending school at nine because of the war and was so happy to see me learn English. He had so much respect for the American soldiers. He would have been so happy to see that democracy won and took over division and hatred in your beautiful country he never had the chance to visit. This is the America I grew up hearing about. Now, I'm not all for the American military because I think there's been some huge fuck-ups there, but <laughs> in terms of the history we grew up with, that's why it was so disappointing to see what happened over the past four years and up to the inauguration of Biden and Harris. And that's why it's so important now to have hope again. 
because to us it's it's liberators and they're not really you know i think a lot of that was shattered we already i already knew that the american dream didn't exist anymore because when i moved to the states that was made pretty clear uh you can't you know and it, it kind of links back to minimum wage too this idea that things that were available to you 30 40 years ago things that your parents could do buy a home while working a minimum wage job and buying a car and having a family with kids when you're 25 and be able to afford all of it was normal back then impossible nowadays student debt is crazy in the states nurses teachers that work full-time but still have to drive uber or you know do deliveries or do extra jobs or overnight jobs on top of that because they can't afford to pay their bills it's just it's 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 been tough from over here i can't speak for everybody and i can't speak for every country i obviously but for my family at least in a way i'm very glad my grandfather didn't did not get to see the trump presidency and did not get to hear some of these representatives spew that shit <laughs> because he would have been so heartbroken yeah and i i definitely agree and thank you for sharing that camille really um when you told mm -hmm. me about that on wednesday it actually made me cry a little bit so that's something that i will definitely carry forward and i hope anyone who's listening kind of feels that as well mm. but i think i think that's the thing that we need to focus on hope not to be too cliche is something that we have had and it's been rewarded um, to an extent. There's a lot of work to do, but it's it will it will keep getting better because what other choice do we have? And we actually have a president now who I think, who's not perfect by any means, but who I think will help rise to the occasion. At least we can hope. Um, and that does all kind of touch on what I wanted to talk with you about next, because, you know, we've been talking about, you know, the U.S. situation and like focusing on that, but also like the European reaction, because what I've been seeing in the U.S. media, and this comes from the New York Times, especially, which I think is a great source, um, is talking about how European leaders, especially within the European Union, are very relieved that, you know, there is now a administration in the United States that is committed to upholding and rebuilding the alliances, which um, suffered real damage under Donald Trump. I don't think most Americans understand the extent to which the Trump administration, not just Trump as a person, but the administration mm -hmm. and his officials, especially Pompeo and all of them, undermined trust in the United States by unilaterally imposing tariffs, by starting an unsuccessful trade war with China, his shenanigans with uh, North Korea, which is still as dangerous, if not more so, and also by unilaterally pulling out of the Iran deal. It's something that is going to take a long time for actually the U.S. to be trusted again. Um, but I think that's kind of where, from what I've seen, it's at European leaders are responding to it, where it's like, welcome back, but we're not going to wait for you. Mm -hmm. It's also exposed mm -hmm. the real divisions within NATO, which is kind of the main counterbalance against China and um, a really out-of-control Russia. Yes, I know that according to the New York Times, Bruno Le Maire, who uh, is France's Minister of Finance and the Economy, so he's been having quite a bit of work to do with the economic <laughs> crisis, um, but Bruno Le Maire has uh, mentioned that global problems have accelerated under Trump and Europe cannot 
subordinate its own interests and agenda, even to a desire for a reinvigorated alliance and a political climate change. And he emphasized that it was not simply a French view, but an increasing European consensus. We have to realize that right-wing extremism has been rising in Europe as well, because whether you like it or not, the US, at least I think before January 6th, was still kind of seen as this beacon, this thing that you wanted to achieve. So whether people were conscious of it or not, uh, whether it's your music, your uh, restaurant chains, like I'm thinking particularly fast food, Starbucks, um, Chipotle, all of those, Netflix, your companies, we are, it's the Americanization of the world Mm -hmm. uh, culturally, but that also means that people will think that because something is allowed in the States, just like right-wing extremism that we've seen the past four years, which has always been there. I'm not saying it wasn't, but now people are being more outspoken about it. I truly believe has had an impact in France, uh, just like, and in Europe, just like we've seen with the um, anti-COVID measures, riots and protests that were happening in the States. Well, what, what do you know? You know, a few weeks later, you had some across Europe. Because people are like, oh, wait, we can protest about this? I don't want to wear a mask either. I want to infect everybody with my germs. So let me just go ahead and protest uh, and block traffic. So I don't know if it's a conscious thing. I don't know if I'm maybe looking too much into it. But I understand in any relationship, whether it's between people or between countries, once the trust is broken, the trust is broken. It takes a long time to get it back. It takes a long time. So of course, European countries are not going to be like, oh, hey, oh, now it's a new guy? Oh, hell yeah. Well, come on back in. Sit down at the table. Do you want a tea, coffee, water, Coca-Cola? Diet what do you want? Hit the button. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be like that. Of course, they're wary because they also know it doesn't all depend on the president. It depends on the Congress. It depends on the citizens. It depends on, on everything and anything. It's not just this one guy who's going to fix everything. You know, your your election system is different than ours, for example. So um, it impacts a whole lot of things politically in your country as well compared to how things are run over here. Like we don't have the electoral college. We just have the universal vote. But our country is also way smaller than yours. But anyways, so yeah, of course, they're like, I'd be worried too. I'd be like, yeah, okay, that's good news. Like, congratulations. But we're going to see what you do and we're going to welcome you back in little by little because we also don't know if in four years we're going to go back to a Trump-like presidency or if we're going to keep going the Biden track of things. You know, you can't can't just go back 100% like that. Um, and then three years later, you're disappointed again and things get broken again. And so I, I get it. I think I think it's going to take some time. Really, it's um, and I think it's normal. And you have to give people the time to get used to it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I one hundred percent agree with you. And I completely understand where that where that comes from. Uh, just because you know, as someone who I have to be honest has also been kind of uh, disappointed with the trajectory of my own country. Um, it is it is frustrating to see, you know, my country throw away or damage these relationships to such an extent. And um, to kind of jump off of what you said, um, right-wing extremism has been rising in Europe, and we've seen what can happen when that happens. So it's really important to kind of... <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So it's really important to kind of realize that things that happen on either side of the Atlantic affect both sides of the Atlantic. And so that's important to note. And plus, it's also really interesting because there are fascinating parallels between life in the United States and the European Union um, in terms of like how it's governed and the diversity of ideas and cultures. Um, granted, it's to a much uh, greater extent in Europe because, of course, it's different nation states and peoples and languages. But it's interesting to see how those parallels interact. And the Trump administration, in its attitude toward Europe, has seen an interesting impact on the European Union. Um, Brexit is kind of uh, lumped in with that, too. Um, but that, that'll be a separate episode, uh, ladies, gaties, and thadies. <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, so that's kind of, I think, our take on the Biden inauguration. We do hope it was informative. Uh, we want to say that we have been really honest with our opinions and thoughts about that. Yes. And also, I need to know this one thing that you put in the document. Yes. Which is that apparently the new press secretary wants to give you a juice box? Yes. What? So part of this... <laughs> Are you friends? <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so part of the shift of administrations has seen a complete shift in the tone and the interaction and respect for the press. The press gets a lot of bad reps, um, you know, but also like a free and fair press is the cornerstone of a healthy democracy. I'm not really going to lie about that. And so... Jen Psaki, who is the new press secretary of the Biden White House, complete breath of fresh air. Her first um, press meeting, her first like briefing, she was calm, clear, direct, honest. When she didn't know something, she admitted she didn't know something. Um, and I think that is amazing. So just the shift in tone, like the actual shift in tone, from the last administration to this administration, I think is really indicative of the type of work that we can see going forward, or we hope to see going forward. What's the link with the juice box? Um, just because there's so many jokes going around social media. Uh, I've seen like a few TikToks where she's like, yeah, I know the last four years have been really, really stressful. Do you guys want to take a nap? Um, here's a juice <laughs> box. Yeah, I'm here. We might disagree, but I'm I'm here to tell you the truth. And like I'm hamming it up, but like that almost feels like like what it is. She wants to like give me a juice box and tell me things are okay. And I'm okay with that right now. Like press briefings are boring again, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds actually quite quite cool. Yeah. Uh we don't have press briefings in France. So I've never had that experience of a press secretary uh you know it's usually the president when it's really big or the prime minister and they'll be like we're coming in you know on tv at this time of this date to tell you more about covid and what we're going to be doing about it that's the main one we've been hearing um but we have no press secretary so that's why i was like is that what the press secretary does like they tell the truth they inform the press on what's going on in the administration and they give out juice boxes well <laughs> what that is technically their job 
minus the juice box, obviously, but it mm. it arises from the unique relationship that Amer the American public has with the presidency, which is a lot more of a personal and also kind of more of a direct force because we don't have prime ministers. We interact with our political parties in a different way. So when we interact with the government, the president is where normally the focus point is. So that's something that, um, you know, is one of those differences. And it's also really important. And uh, having a press secretary who will tell the truth, who communicates the clear plans and directions of the administration is very important. Jen Psaki, I wish you the best. Thank you so much. Um, yes. <laughs> you go. You go and do your job and do it well, as we know we like you will, and we look forward to the next four years of, like you said, Devin, boring, <laughs> like just boring press briefings. You know that would just be so wonderful to listen to and not absolutely like stressful and full of uh, of lies. Yes. So now, here is what we're going to be talking about next week changing uh from the states to europe let's go just to give you a little bit of an idea mm -hmm. a couple governments have collapsed i know it's not a good way to start <laughs> this but it's true <laughs> the dutch and the italian governments yes and weird. also like a change of term because for american listeners it's important to emphasize that when we think about the government we think about the whole constitutional system like, you know, the federal government, uh, it's like Congress and the president and all of that. But in Europe, who have parliamentary democracies for the most part, the government is essentially the prime minister and the cabinet. So when we say the government has fallen, it means that parliament, which is the legislature, does not have faith in the government anymore. Or the government, which is the cabinet of ministers, does not have an ability to enact its policies anymore. So they resign and a caretaker yes. only takes its place but it's really important when it does. Yes. So, <laughs> so we will look at all these details. Um, I'll do some research to really be able to explain to you folks how the governments work within these two countries so you know exactly what's happening. We will also be talking about the um, September election happening in Germany because it will be the end of the Angela Merkel era. So she will be leaving and we will discuss, you know, Who's going to maybe get elected? Do they have a good chance? What's happening? You know, what parties are involved? How does it work also? So basically next week we're going to be learning a whole lot about different electoral systems in Europe. Um, and yeah, and then we might talk a little bit too about Canada and, and Russia and there if we have some time. But uh, you can follow us on Instagram. Where is that at, Devin? I don't remember it by heart. So you can follow us on Instagram at Podcast Transatlantic. We will be posting um, some pictures, some uh, episode updates, and any other links that you would like to try and have access to our sources. We are trying to find a good way to kind of get those out there because we want to be as transparent as possible. Uh, Podcast Transatlantic. And you can also follow us where our podcast is available. As of now, we're still working on getting available on Apple Podcasts, but we are available on Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, and of course, Anchor, where we are recording. I would just like, if that's okay with you, to end this wonderful episode on probably one of the best things to happen during the inauguration, which was the wonderful 
Amanda Gorman. Oh my God, yes. Who, um, yes, who read the poem The Hill We Climb during the inauguration. Now she's a, she's a young person. She's a huge, just amazingly talented person. And if, um, you know, I think we should probably put a link to the CNN article with her, with her poem in it. Because if people haven't been able to see it or haven't heard about it yet, I am not about to recite it because I really don't have the talent for it. It's, it's no, it would be absolutely shameful. So um, probably share this with you folks online because it is worth the read and worth the listen if you can find it. So. Yes. Although I do want to end on a small quote from it that I think is really important going forward. Mm -hmm. And it is, when day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. See you next week, Thank everybody. Thank you so much.